Okay, we begin in Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Now, we may do it a little differently tonight from this standpoint. Brad has a special treat for us. Two songs and not one song. And uh, so he divided it up at around verse 9. And I'm going to give you... There are a couple of different ways you can outline this section, okay? Um, I'm going to put verses 1 and 2. David urgently... He urgently requests God to answer And Lord willing, tonight we'll have some notes that we will send out to you all. But the enemy uh, threatens to destroy him and David urgently pleads with God to answer. Then, in verses 3-5, through if he is guilty, let him be judged. He is not claiming or not demanding immunity if he has sinned, if he has done wrong, if he has done evil, um, but he feels he has been falsely accused. In verses 6 through 11, now, as we already stated, uh, verse 9 is where a Brad song makes the first break, and some divided up at that point and, and there's a legitimate way to do that I use verses 9 through 11 and he calls on God to judge and verses 12 through 16 the wicked will receive the consequences of their wickedness. And then in verse 17, he praises and thanks God for blessing him. The reason that I put verses 6 through 11 together is in this structure, you begin and you end with references to God's anger. In verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. In verse 11, God is a righteous judge. A God who has indignation every day. That's the reason I divide it the way I do. Is it legitimate to believe verse 10 starts a new section and that verses 10 through 16 are all tied with the wicked receiving the consequences of their wickedness? Yes. And there are a couple of other ways to divide it as well. But those are, those are, that is a possible outline. Let me read the text and work your own outline out if you want as you read it, as you prepare it beforehand, or even look back over the notes afterwards. 
Our outline isn't a way, it's not that we're wed to this outline, but it is a way to help us understand the breaks in the text. But a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, I have done this. If there, if, if, excuse me, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hand, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. And let the evil of the wicked come to an end. But establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and the mind. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will not sharpen his sword. He has been his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. First of all, this title... A shiggy anon. And um, now, do not go by that pronunciation, please. Uh, you will embarrass yourself. <laughs> but this is the only time that title is used in Psalms. It's used one other place, Habakkuk 3, at the beginning of that particular poem. But it's not used again in the Psalms. And we're not sure of what it meant. Nor are we sure of who Cush the Benjamite was. We we don't have a record of him under that name. But the very fact, as one writer pointed out, I think this is a very good point to make. The very fact that we don't know who Cush is and we don't know about him from any of the events of the life of David, probably emphasizes the authenticity of this title and the antiquity of this title. That this is very old of a title. That that this is an authentic 
title and it dates too long ago. It dates to the time of David. So, whatever the circumstances that led to the writing of the psalm, while it can't be determined with certainty, we can see a few things from the psalm itself. First of all, you see in verses 1 and 2, you see that he was being pursued by enemies, persecuted by enemies. That word can be translated in verse 1 and verse 5, pursue or persecute. But, but he was being pursued, he was being persecuting, persecuting, and his enemies are threatening to destroy him like a lion. A simile, like a lion, like a lion rips apart a person. He feels as if he is standing before lions with no weapons in his hand, nowhere to run, and no one to defend him. And he makes his plea to God. He says, O Lord, in you I have taken refuge. What are we to do? What are we to do when we come face to face with lions, with no weapon in our hand, with no one strong enough to deliver? We put our refuge in Him. Notice how God is described in Isaiah 25 verse 4. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. All of those are ways, Isaiah 25 verse 4, to describe God's protection, God's defense, God's security. God is our refuge. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all who who persecute me and deliver me. Now, he speaks of the Lord as my God in verse 1 and verse 3. He has a personal relationship with God. He has not just started to call on God in the day of crisis. He has called on Him at all times. Call on God at all times. Seek His face at all times. So that when you call to Him in times of crisis, you don't have to introduce yourself. The psalmist did this. He has taken refuge, but he faces a perpetual threat now and he begs God to save him and deliver him. And he knows that if God does not say, there is no one who is able to. And I will give you some passages in the notes, Lord willing. And for some of you who are visiting, make sure we get you those notes. Um, And we will get them to you. But there are a lot of passages in the Psalms where lions are a description of the foes. Of godly people. But in verses 3 through 5, verses 3 through 5, if he is guilty, let him be judged. Notice in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, the word if is used three times. 
He uses that word three times. And then in verse 5, he states three consequences. If he has been guilty in any of these ways, he describes in verses 3 and 4, he prays that he experiences these consequences of verse 5. Now, we do not know what the specific charge against the psalmist, against David was. We don't know. But apparently he is not guilty of this charge. He is innocent of what he is being accused. And he pours out this to God. Oh Lord, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hand. Remember we talked about how the priest washed his hands in the basin before he went into the tabernacle. And it was a reminder that to enter God's house, one must have clean hands and a pure heart. And he says, if I have injustice in my hands, Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.15, I will not hear your prayer because your hands are covered with blood. But here, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered without cause, who was my adversary? If I have done any of these things in verses 3 and 4, then may I experience these consequences. In verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Now, I think it's significant that the word pursue, or maybe it's translated persecute in your versions in verse 5, is the same word pursue or persecute that was used back in verse 1. He begged for, he begged to be preserved or saved in verse 1 because all who, because of all who pursue me. But here he's saying, if I am guilty, let them not just pursue me, but catch me. If I'm guilty, let them pursue me and overtake me. Let them trample my life to the ground. You remember how Jezebel was trampled in 2 Kings chapter 9? Same word used here. Remember how the the man uh, who had said, if the Lord should open the windows of heaven, how can this be? To Elisha in 2 Kings 7, remember that man? And he was told that you will not see it. He was trampled. Same word, 2 Kings 7 verse 17 is used here. If I am guilty of any of these things, may my enemy pursue me, may they catch me, may, may, may they trample me to the ground and lay me in the dust. Salah. He was saying, if I have done anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. In the language of Paul in Acts 25 verses 11 and 12, if I have been guilty of any of these things, let me experience these consequences. Now, as he mentions these consequences here in verse 5, these are not light consequences. I mean, this means death. But this is how strongly he knows he's innocent and is affirming his innocence of these charges. Now, we won't deal with all of that right now because we're going to come back in verse 8 to the basis of his appeal. We want to come back to that idea. But... I want you to be thinking about this. Is this affirmation in verses 3 through 5, 
Is this affirmation self-righteousness? Or is it justified? There, is, there are a couple of places in this chapter where there are great problems with translation. Um, we Verse 4 at the end is one of them. And it says, If I have rewarded evil to my friend, not much controversy about that, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. Do any of you have a vastly different translation for the latter part of verse 4? Any of you have anything that's significant? David? Yeah, the New King James says, or have plundered my enemy without cause. Okay, plundered my enemy without cause. Do any of you have different something different than plundered? Do you know what... Robbed. Okay, robbed. Robbed, plundered. It's still... I thought you were making reference to your husband there. But anyway... um, uh, But uh, seriously, looking at this text... Do you know what the the Hebrew text... it, It says... It says, if I have rescued my enemy without cause. And it's almost making it sound like a negative thing, isn't it? I mean, the, the wording is slightly... This is what some people... This is an argument, and I was just reading this a few hours ago. That I thought he made a pretty good argument. He said, you notice this is not prefaced by an if. He says, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, if I've done evil to someone who is my friend or my ally, and he kind of interjects the fact, I not only have not done evil to my friend and ally, I have even rescued the person who was my enemy without cause. That that may be the idea. I don't want, though, to get weighed down so much in every single idea that we miss the overall point. I think still the major point is he is affirming his innocence. And he is stating, if I am guilty of these crimes, may the Lord judge me. Now, I want you to notice in verse 6 that he begins using several terms here, calling upon God to act. In verse 6, arise, O Lord, lift up yourself and arouse yourself. Arise, lift up yourself, and arouse yourself. It could be uh, it could be one of these words, and probably is in some of your translations. Awake, awake. You know, it's it's a bold cry to tell God to wake up, isn't it? Arise, lift yourself up, and arouse yourself. What this shows us is how desperate he feels his condition and how urgently he needs help. That's what it shows us. When he's calling on God to arise and God to lift himself and God to arouse himself or wake himself, he is in a desperate situation and he is in urgent need of help and he is begging the Lord to judge and come to his aid. Oh Lord, arise in your anger. As I stated a moment ago, one reason I use this outline is because there's a reference in verse 6 
to the anger of God. And then there would be a reference in verse 11 to the anger of God. That that, that would kind of begin and end this section. Uh, that's called, and a term that we may talk about more next time, Lord willing, in Psalm 8, inclusio. Inclusio, uh, when you have the same thought beginning a section that ends a section. Now, we may not want to think of God's anger, God's vengeance, but notice that God's anger is needed in this circumstance to counteract the rage and anger of His enemies. Arise, O Lord, in your anger and lift up yourself Against the rage of my adversaries. His adversaries are enraged with him. And they are demonstrating that. And he begs God to respond in anger. Now, you may have noticed though that is a contrast with what we studied last week. In 6 verse 1, the same word for anger was used. But there, David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. He begged God to be merciful to him and not respond to him in anger. But here he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger and lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. This anger or rage was needed for that is the attitude that they are bringing against Him. He's not strong enough to deal with it. He is calling upon God to deal with it in His way. And in verse 7, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you And over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. And let the evil of the wicked come to an end. But establish the righteous. For the Lord, for the righteous God, tries the hearts and minds. The Lord judges the people. Vindicate me according to my righteousness. Now we have seen before in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 5 verse 7, As for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. And we talked in a passage like that, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter the house. That, that he is not attributing his entrance into the house of God to his righteousness or his holiness or anything like that. He is attributing his entrance into the house of God to God's mercy, to God's loving kindness. Because he recognizes he is desperately in need of that mercy. Not to take away anything that we said in looking at those passages because that perspective is absolutely true. Is there ever a time though that we can use these words to God vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Could we ever use words like righteousness 
and integrity in reference to ourselves. Now, I'll tell you what caught my attention several years ago. It was not this passage that we were reading. And I'm not sure where it was. I I think I've got an idea because of where we were sitting in the class. But I'm not exactly sure. But we were reading a passage like this. And I asked the class, what's your impression when you hear those words? And one in the class said that the speaker is self-righteous. I don't want us to ever lose sight of the fact that we have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God and our hope of heaven is based on Him and His grace and His mercy and not because we've been so good. But on the other hand, I don't want us to reach the point that if anyone pleads not guilty, that they're viewed as self-righteous. Because there are a lot of things that if you were accused of, that if I was accused of, our immediate response is, we're innocent. And we would call upon the Lord to vindicate us because we have been falsely accused and falsely charged. Now, let me illustrate this further. The word that he uses here, he said, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And we're going to have reason to talk about that a little bit more. Because the word righteous, righteousness, forms of that word are going to be used several times. But then he says, my integrity. My integrity. Let me tell you some times you're familiar with this word. Job 1 verse 1. Job was perfect and upright. The word translated perfect, blameless in your versions is the same word translated integrity. And it is a word that keeps coming up in the context of Job. Job is a man who's blameless. Uh, he fears God. He turns away from evil. You see that in Job 1.1, in Job 1.8, Job 2.3, Job 27 verse 6. Job uses that word integrity of himself. It is also a word that was used in Genesis 20 in verses 5 and 6. You remember Abimelech is told you're a dead man because you've taken the wife of another man. And he says, I have done this in the innocence of my hand and the integrity of my heart. It's the same word that we're dealing with. The same word. He was not guilty in that specific case. And God says, I know that you did this in your integrity and therefore I have kept you from sinning against me. It is the word that's used in Genesis 17 verse 1 which tells us that Abraham was blameless in the ordinances of God. So it is a word that you're familiar with from several passages of Scripture. And often it is God who's making that assessment of people. You see? 
Now, God is saying that of Job in Job 1.1. God is saying that of Abimelech. Abimelech says it of himself, but God echoes that sentiment. You've done this in the integrity of your heart. There are psalms where the writer feels he's guilty and throws himself on God's mercy. But there are times that the writer's been falsely accused and begs the righteous and holy God to intervene. Yes. Vindication and God's anger upon those, but yet, as you were mentioning in Psalm 6, when he has done something wrong, don't use your anger against me. How do we how do we be able to reconcile the okay. times where we're calling upon God's anger where we're not being hypocritical and saying, Do it to everybody else, but don't touch me? That's a very fair question. Very fair question. I'm glad you asked it because I don't think I addressed it adequately before. I think the difference would be what we sum up in one word is repentance. Would David have begged for God's mercy on those who had done these wrongs and were repentant of them and said, I have sinned against you? I think he would have. I think he would have. I think it's a different thing when when we've sinned and we've repented and when one refuses to repent. But it's also a different thing when someone else has sinned and repented and we refuse to repent too. Hey, that's a different thing. And we're not in the same state that someone is who has repented of wrong. But, but I do think that makes all the difference in the world Because there are places, even in, just make a note of this. I may read it. It's in Psalm 35, beginning with verse 12. And this is in the midst of an imprecatory prayer where he is calling for God's judgment upon those who've done evil to him. But listen to what he says about them. He says in verse 12, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. It's just hard for me to believe that that he would refuse to forgive someone who came to him when he was already praying for them. When they were his enemies. But I do think that's a good question. Did, did, I, did I explain that adequately, not just for Rob, but for everybody? Did every did everyone, anyone else want to ask us? That is, I want to be fair with that question. Because that gets maybe to the heart of some people's problem with these being placed side by side. Um But in verse 9, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for the Lord, for the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. And there are all kinds of passages 
in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, that speak of God trying the hearts and minds. Now, we have come to a break, and we're going to have a song here. Now, I'm going to keep my microphone on. If you don't hear me singing loud in this time, and you probably won't, I'm probably going to listen to this and sing real lightly, because my microphone is still on. And um, But Brad's going to lead us in a song here, based on Psalm 7, 1 through 9. And then, Lord willing, we'll sing one, verses 7 through 10. Somebody else need a copy? Everybody got one? Titus has got those. Right here, Titus. All right, uh, to the tune of Cleanse Me, so... Brad for that and those have added so much to class and to help us to to remember some of the words of the psalm let's pick up in verse 10 in verse 10 he says my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart so again there's kind of a incidental reference or 
or um, an, an implication that he is upright in heart. My shield is God or with God who is with the upright in heart. And God is a righteous judge. A God who has indignation every day. Do you know the Septuagint, the Greek translation, have that God does not have indignation? One writer said it well when he said the indignation or anger of God is good news for a broken and oppressed and hurt people. Understanding how holy our God is, how good He is, how loving He is, we do want a God who is outraged at evil. If we're not outraged by anything, that's just something dangerous about it. And you can hear about what Hitler did to the Jewish people in World War II. Not be angry. You can hear the most horrific cases of child abuse in the news today and not be angered. God is a righteous judge who has indignation every day. Verses 12 and 13 are one of those real big difficult problems in the Hebrew text. I think we can understand the overall message regardless of which way we go. But the question is, who is the subject? I'm going to erase this right now. Who is the subject or the subjects in verses 12 and 13? Because obviously in verses 10 and 11, in verses 10 and 11, God is the subject. In verse 14 through 16, the wicked is the subject. Wicked's doing the acting. Now, your translations may not indicate it, but the word simply in verse 12 and 13, it says, he. Now, who is the he? Is the he, does it refer back to God? In verses 10 and 11, or does it refer to the wicked in verses 14 through 16? Let me illustrate the difference. If this is God, if, if he is the subject, then he is sharpening his sword, bending his bow, and preparing his weapons, his arrows, uh, with uh, which he would dip in pitch or, or, or fire and shoot at the enemy. He is preparing them in verses 14 through 16 against the wicked. Is that a picture of God that is consistent with the rest of the Bible? Is God ever pitch, pictured as a warrior doing battle with the wicked? 
Uh, Listen to these verses in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 40 and 41. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand holds on justice, I will render vengeance to my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. Verse 42, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh, etc. But the point, it speaks of God's swords, it it speaks of God's sword, it speaks of God's arrows. It uses the picture of God as a warrior who brings judgment against the wicked. That picture is consistent with the rest of Scripture, so it fits. It also fits if we say this is a picture of the wicked and describes the wicked's persecution of the righteous. That picture is also given in Scripture. If you look in uh, Psalm uh, 37, verses 12 and 13, the Bible says the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth uh, at him. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent the bow to cast down the afflicted to slay those who are upright in conduct. That's Psalm 37 verses 12 through 14. So it fits either way. And either way we come out at the same place. What we are finding is that the wicked are doing evil to the righteous. What the psalmist has experienced is just a little bit of what is experienced across a wide range of humanity. As people are done injustice and are suffering and are done evil. But ultimately God will bring down the wicked. Again, did I explain that clearly enough? Do you have a question about that? Because either way, I think we end out the same point. Okay? In verses 12 through 16, they do as a whole demonstrate, whether it is the wicked shooting at the righteous, or whether it is God preparing His weapons against the wicked, it eventually emphasizes that the wicked will be brought down. In verse 14, He travails in wickedness. He conceives mischief. He brings forth falsehood. The word brings forth could be translated gives birth to falsehood. Did you see that reference to birth? He travails. He conceives. He brings forth. It is like this person is is in labor and they're in great pain. And they give birth to evil or sin. This is the image he's using. Sometimes these images are so powerful. Remember where the Bible does that in another place with sin? About let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God does not tempt uh, any man with evil. God is not tempted by evil, neither does he himself tempt anyone. But each man is tempted when he's drawn away from his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is finished, 
it gives birth to death. That's James 1, verses 13 through 15. And what you find here in this particular passage is you find this image of birth, but it is not a a, a beautiful child that has been delivered, but it is sin and wickedness and falsehood and all that is ugly and all that is profane, that it has been given birth by this person. And it says, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return on his own head. His violence will descend on his own head. So, what this is stating here. Yes, Brother McNabb. In the KJ, it's the, uh, with the wicked, is in Alcalis, that, uh, I mean, to me, as I read it, it's, it's, it's a man. Yeah, the man. It's, the King James, what it says, uh, with the weak is in italics. It's, it's in italics there, you're saying, in, in, in verse 12? 14. 14. 14. 14. Okay. 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 I would have to look at it to see. I'll, I'll look at it for you afterwards and tell you um, what my people. The italicized words indicates not the original, but but I don't. Um, uh, I didn't follow exactly the wording closely enough to give you an answer. I apologize on that, but I'll try to look at that afterwards. And I do appreciate uh, that thought, but we'll try to look at that and see. Tom, um, yes. This- New American Standard, which I know you're looking at. Just, yeah. I look at this as a, a jumping back and forth between the wicked man and God. It could be. Or it seems that way, even even the ones who uh, prepared it. The, yeah. The, the he is capitalized in 12 and 13. Okay, okay, and yeah. And 14 drops back to the standard character. Yes, and it can be the subject is... God, God responds and, you know... Seems like that. You're exactly right. It could be jumping back and forth, and I did not explain that thoroughly enough before, because it could be if the man doesn't repent in verse 12, that's the way it's worded in the King James, it really says he, you know, that he will sharpen. It could be if, if man doesn't repent, God will sharpen his sword. So it could be bouncing back and forth between between them. But verses 15 and 16... I love that statement in Proverbs 26, verse 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. If somebody is doing this to try to trap somebody else, they're going to be trapped. They're digging a pit. They're anxious to catch someone. They're caught in their own pit. And this idea which we, we, we spoke of Lex Talionis, it's found so often in the Bible, and so often in the Psalms. I mean, we'll just see it so many times. Look in 9 verse 15. 9 verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. So it's the same idea. Psalm chapter 9, verse 15, and you can go on reading verse 16 and see the same thing, that you're caught in the trap that you have laid for others. And you know the story well. 
You know the story well of Haman who is incensed at his enemy Mordecai and builds a gallows 75 feet high. And it ends up who is the one that's hanged on that gallows. Uh, Not just Haman, but by the end of the book, Haman and his ten sons are hanged there as well. And so often the plots, the wicked, the wicked lay against others come back to halt them. And this is what the text tells us. Now, does that happen just because voila, it just magically happens that way? Or does it happen because our God is a God of justice who every day is dispensing justice? Is that why it happens? I would say yes. It's true that the evil person often brings his destruction on himself. But it's not in such a way that leaves God out of the process. God is intimately involved in the process because right after he's taught about judgment on the wicked, it's then he says in verses 12 and verse 17, I give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. I'll sing praise to the name of God most high. He is thanking and praising God. He is thanking and praising God because God is brings judgment upon the wicked. God has answered his cry and God has now caught the lion that is seeking to destroy him, in effect. Notice that God is described in verse 17 as as the most high God, the Lord most high. That may remind us of how Melchizedek spoke of God in Genesis 14. Now, theologically, first of all, we want to say, what does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about Christ? And um, there is the theme of God as Savior. He is called Savior. He is asked to deliver. He is asked to save. He saves those who are upright in heart, verse 10. But but the strongest concept of God in this passage, the one that's most dominant, is God as judge. God as judge. And He is pictured, for example, as God God being the judge of all peoples. That was stated in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He is the judge of all peoples. And He is a righteous judge, as verse 11 says. He is a righteous judge. Psalm 7 and verse 11. I love the question Abraham asked in Genesis 18.25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is judge. He's judge of all. He is a righteous judge. He is a God who is angry with sin. And we saw that in chapter 7, verse 6. In chapter 7, in verse 11. And this isn't limited just to this passage. Remember in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in ungodliness. God is angry with sin God 
punishes sin. God punishes sin. And you see that particularly in verse 9. In verses 11. You could just say in verses 11 through 16. All these verses show us His punishment of sin. And God is to be praised. But this is a footnote of that fourth point. God is praised because of His judgment on sin. You who are troubled, rest with us. For the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in His flame with in vengeance, in flaming, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. This was a cause of assurance. I should give verses five through ten, not just verses seven and eight of Second Thessalonians one, but it was a cause of assurance to the early Christians that God was a God who brought vengeance. Let me tell you a Hebrew word you all know. Hallelujah. You all know that word. Very few words from Hebrew have made their way into English, but that word has. And it word means praise the Lord. The, the Yah is a shortened form of the name Yahweh. Do you know how many times that phrase is used in the New Testament? Four times. All in the same context. Those four times that hallelujah is said, praise God, is Revelation 19, 1-6. What are they praising God for in Revelation 19? Because God has brought judgment on the wicked. We, as believers in an all-powerful God, who is going to judge all nations, when we see a wicked person get away with their wickedness, we know they won't always escape. They won't always escape. A person stated he was a lawyer, in a high profile murder case and he knew the defendant was guilty he was a prosecuting attorney he knew the defendant was guilty the defendant knew he was guilty and he got off and he says we were on the elevator afterwards and I don't know whether he said these words or whether he said he just thought these words but he said, there will be a day you will stand before a judge who will not be so easily fooled as those people on that jewelry were. We believe there's a God who will punish sin and that is a reason to praise Him. It leads us to, as Rob was asking earlier, to seek forgiveness. To seek forgiveness. But this psalm does make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. And it tells us that God will vindicate the righteous. God will vindicate the righteous. In 7 9. 7 9 is a powerful passage. It says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. 
Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. The psalmist was praying about his circumstance and his situation. He felt an urgent need. He was in desperate condition. He felt an urgent need for God to intervene. Arise, O God. Lift up yourself. Arouse yourself. Please, God, act on my behalf. But but even if God did act on behalf of the psalmist, have we seen verse 9 fully realized? Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. Have we seen that fully realized? The point is, God demonstrates this to some degree every day. But man, this isn't demonstrated at all like it's going to be, is it? I mean, think about Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, where before Him are gathered all nations. It's 25. Before Him are gathered all nations, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will judge all nations. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained. Acts 17, 30 and 31. The word righteous or righteousness is used over and over in this psalm. In verse 8, it refers to the psalmist. In verse 9, it refers to other righteous people. But three times it refers to God. It refers to God in 711. It refers to God in 7 verse um, 9, in 7 verse 17. All these cases refer to God. God is a righteous judge. God is angry with sin. And it is a terrifying thing, as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 tells us, to fall in the hands of the living God. God punishes sin. God vindicates the righteous. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God. I I hope people come to that realization before it is too late to change their condition. But do I rejoice And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yes. I hope they do it before it's too late. And I rejoice that God will be vindicated and all who have put their trust in Him will be vindicated. I rejoice in that. So God as judge is a key theological theme from this. And I may have some more verses for you in the notes. But as we close, how do we see Jesus in this psalm? Now, again, I hope I'm being fair with this. Just because I say it doesn't mean it's so. You're going to have to think through it and see if you think it's valid. I don't want to get so excited in making these points that I make some carelessly or recklessly. But where do we see Jesus in Psalm 7? Well, first of all, Jesus knew something 
about being falsely accused. The text in Matthew 26, verse 57 through 68, emphasizes how they accused him falsely. Mark 14, verses 53 through 65, it keeps telling us there were false witnesses and they... Uh, they're, they're brought up and, and they even in this respect, Mark says their testimony doesn't agree. They accuse Jesus in Luke 23 verses 1 through 5. They accuse Jesus of saying it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar when just a couple of days before he had clearly told them that it wasn't rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Jesus knows the pain, the sting of false accusation. He knew this better than anyone. And Jesus, of course, this is obvious to say, He was innocent. He was innocent. Do you know almost every New Testament writer, if not every single one of them, affirms the innocence of Jesus in some way, the sinlessness of Jesus, perhaps none stronger than the author of Hebrews who tells us He was tempted at all points like as we are and yet without sin. Jesus was innocent of the charges. And remember what we said about the translation of verse 4? That He may be saying, I didn't do wrong to my friends. I didn't do wrong to my friends. I, I didn't even, um, I didn't even, um, I didn't do wrong to my friends. I even showed peace to those who were my enemies. Jesus in Luke 22 verses 50 and 51 has someone that's coming to arrest him and they cut off his ear and Jesus heals it. But I'm going to tell you something too. There's a way in which Jesus was unlike the psalmist. And we can make these points of comparison. Here is a point of contrast, okay? The psalmist said in Psalm 7 2, he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away. While there is none to deliver. Jesus could have delivered himself. He could have. He said, those that live by the sword will perish by the sword. And don't you know that I could pray to my Father and He would send more than 12 legions of angels? He said this, but He said, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled? Do you remember the statement that's made in John eleven thirty seven about Jesus? When Jesus was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, they said, couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind, have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Of course he could have. And he could have kept himself from dying. But he says in John chapter 10, 
10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus knew false accusation. Jesus was innocent. Jesus could have delivered himself. And thanks to Derek Kidner, this next point even crossed my mind. You see the word lifted up in Hebrew in verse 6. Lifted up. 7 verse 6, the word lifted up. That is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, by the same word that is used in these passages. John 3, 14 and 15. John 8, 28, John 12, 32, and 33. Now what's going on in these passages? As the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. If I be lifted up, all men shall know I am. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He said this, the text says, signifying by what kind of death He was going to die. In the cross, Jesus was lifted up amidst the rage of his adversaries in a way different than we see here. He is handed over to the crowds. And yet, the verse that's used In verse 6, the word that's translated arise, that is the word that is used for the resurrection of Jesus. It's in Mark 8, I think it's 31. Yeah, Mark 8, 31. Mark 9, 9 and 10. Mark 10, 34. All these passages, the word that's used, arise, arise, O Lord. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is a word that's used to speak of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was the ultimate indication. Jesus was the ultimate example of 